nativity scenes didn't pop on the scene until about 1220 A.D. St. Francis of Assisi, history tells us, began to realize in his village there in northern Italy, many of his congregation, many of his people had never heard about the story of Jesus Christ. They couldn't read and write. The church services they went to, which were the mass, were in Latin, so they couldn't really understand it. And so these people that were going to church every week didn't understand or know about the birth of Jesus. And so he thought, I can help explain it by adding a visual aid. And so he had planned in a cave outside of one of his villages to put together a live nativity scene. And so he gathered some animals, he gathered some hay, built a manger, had it put in the middle, and then he had people from the town dress up as the parts. And legend has it that he would use an orphan from the area to play a baby Jesus because he knew that after the orphan played baby Jesus, he would be treated differently throughout the village. But as they watched this live nativity scene, and they would sing some carols, Assisi would tell the story that they were watching. And over the years, it got popular. So popular that people were making pilgrimages to come and see this first nativity scene. The Pope at the time, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Honorable III, uh, decided he wanted to see it. And so he made a pilgrimage from Rome to northern Italy to watch. And after watching it, he gave it his stamp of approval. And what that did was open the floodgates to where within a hundred years there were churches all over not just Italy, but France, Great Britain, will become Great Britain, uh, northern Europe were beginning to do live nativity scenes like Francis did. Within 200 years, historians and sociologists say that we've begun to find where craftsmen had taken wood or taken clay or taken stone and they have carved out nativity scenes and they would begin to find in the local churches nativity scenes like this instead of a live one a reenacted nativity scene even in the homes of wealthy people and and it, it grew so popular that even though sometimes over the cultures they added little things uh, if you were in northern Europe it was a cave if you were in southern Italy it was a manger uh, if you were in one of the major towns and it would have lots of gold and it would have lots of flourishments added to the nativity but even though they added things All through the last 800 years, most nativity scenes have stayed exactly like they first started, exactly like Assisi planned it. They all have the same elements. All of them have Mary and Joseph standing around a baby Jesus. Sometimes he's in a manger, which a manger was a feeding trough. Sometimes he's in a manger. Sometimes he's laying in a, a stack of hay. You have the shepherds from Luke's version. Uh, They're usually gathered around. Sometimes you have animals. You may have ox or you may have donkeys or you may have sheep. There may be even camels in some people's nativity scene depending on the region that you're from. But usually the shepherds are over on one side. And to differentiate, they would add sometimes a sheep around one of the shepherds' necks so that you know that's the shepherd. Because uh, as I said, some people would add a lot of bystanders to the nativity. So there'd be more people than just what we have in in our nativity scenes. As a matter of fact, there are instances where some of the popes had craftsmen carve out their picture and their frame and put them in the nativity scene, sometimes even as a wise man or, or standing over in the back, kind of like Jesus is born and the pope's over here looking on. But you always had the shepherds, and they had sheep, to, so you knew they weren't the pope, they were shepherds. And then in most of our nativity scenes, we have the three magi, or what get called the three wise men, or the three kings, depending on your tradition. And it's very rare that you will not see a nativity scene that doesn't have the three wise men. Even though 
They weren't there at the birth of Jesus Christ. The wise men weren't there when the shepherd showed up. I first learned that uh, probably in college, and that's embarrassing to admit, but it's probably college. When I was in a New Testament class and we were comparing the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we were looking at these Gospels that are the same, and and we looked at the two birth stories in Luke and in Matthew, and and they're different. They tell a different story. They tell it from a different uh, angle for purposes. But as you read those, you begin to realize that what Luke is telling and what Matthew is telling are two different things. And when the wise men showed up, it was much later than when the shepherds got there. And so they wouldn't have been. And that doesn't keep us from putting them in there because they are a vital part of the story. But that blew my mind. All this time I didn't realize that the wise men weren't a part of the story. Matter of fact, we probably know less about the wise men than any other part of the story. Now we've made up a lot of stuff about the wise men. We've created a lot of stuff about the wise men, but a lot like what having them in the nativity scene does. We, we really don't know who they were. We, we don't know where they came from. We don't know when they got there. We don't know why they came in reality, except for what the story tells us. Matter of fact, there's nothing that tells us they're kings. Really, the the translation of King James calls them wise men, but that's not a great translation. Uh, The word there in the Greek is magio, and that is magi. And so we really don't know if they were wise men. I I think some people today would say even that term wise men is an oxymoron. Oxymoron is adding two uh, completely contradictory terms together to make a statement. It's kind of like postal service or uh, jumbo shrimp. Right? Those are oxymorons. Uh, recent history, honest politician, pretty ugly. I came up with some great short sermon. Those are oxymorons that don't, don't fit together. And so people would say, well, wise men is an oxymoron. Matter of fact, I've read that there are some people that suggest God probably would have been better off sending wise women instead of wise men. Because if he would have sent wise women, they would have stopped and asked for directions much sooner. So they would have got there on time. They would have been there uh, when it happened. They could have helped Mary with the birth. And they would have cleaned the stable. And probably they would have brought much more practical gifts than gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Maybe uh, pampers and a casserole and a bottle of wine or something. I don't know. That's just what mothers have said they prefer. But, but these wise women probably would have done a little better. But we're stuck with these magi. And so if we don't know who they are, and we don't know why they came, and we don't know what they were doing or what their purpose is, why are they a part of this birth story of Jesus? Why are they so important playing a role that we've added them to this nativity scene for the last 800 years? Well, let's read the story and see what happens. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 2, you can look at it in your order of service. It's printed out there so you can follow along. Matthew 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, that's the word from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the people's chief priests, these were the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. He basically came, heard that these men were here looking for the king of the Jews, and so he calls the religious leaders together, and he says, listen, tell me in prophecy, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? 
And they answered him, In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, For it is what the prophet has written. And he quotes Micah 5 too. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. It was written uh, 300, 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Then Herod called the Magi together secretly, and he found out from them the exact time the star appeared. So he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for this child, and as soon as you find him, report him to me, so that I may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they were on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over a place where the child was born. The child was, really, is what it says. Now, I don't know if you picked up, the star moves. Okay, did you catch that? That they, they were in Jerusalem. When they came out, the star started moving in front of them. And when they got to where the baby Jesus was, the star stopped. It says the star led them to where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw house. Okay, there's a little hint. On coming to the house. Uh, it didn't say on coming to the stable, on coming to the manger, on coming to the barn. When they came to the house, they were overjoyed. They saw the child with Mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense. And we have that as frankincense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So what do we know about these guys? Well, before we talk about why they're in this story, I just want to make sure you understand some of the things we don't know. Because I think before we understand what's important, we need to clear out some of the misconceptions we may have about this story of the Magi. Well, first of all, we don't know who they really are. All we have in this reading is the word Magi, which I said comes from the Greek word magio, which comes from the Latin Magi, which is where we get our root word for magic. It's where we understand magic. Now, in this time period when Jesus was born, there were a group of men that were learned and educated men that were called Magi. And, and it had transferred, started in the Persian Empire, and it had transferred to where anyone that was an educated scholar in the Arab world that had some schooling was called a magi. And so that's where we get the term wise men. They had been educated. They had been studied. Uh, They were scholars. But nothing in this writing tells us they were kings. The first time we ever have an indication of kings is not until the third or fourth century when Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, decided that there are several prophecies in Isaiah and in the Psalms that talk about the Messiah being visited by kings. So he said, listen, It doesn't say they're kings, but we're going to call them kings so they fit into the prophecy. Now, there is some teaching we'll see in just a little later that that, that maybe many of the magi, while they weren't kings, they could have been called princes. They were not necessarily kings, but maybe kings in training. And that's what Tertullian was saying. But we don't have that in our story. There's a later theory that comes out saying that the three men represented the three descendants of Noah, that these were part of all of mankind after the flood wiped out mankind and the three descendants of Noah became mankind that each one of these men represented those three strings of mankind but there's nothing in in either history or Bible that tells us that now it wasn't until about the 6th century that there was a document passed around that decided to give these three guys names and in the Catholic Church it became common teaching that the three wise men's names were Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar 
Now, you may have heard those terms thrown around. That came about about the 6th century. And not only did it give them names, it described them. It said that Gaspar or Caspar was young and didn't have a beard. He had a ruddy complexion. That Melchior was an older man, had a long white beard. And Balthazar was a darker colored man that had a beard as well. Now, you may notice that if you have a nativity scene in your house, pull it out and look at the three wise men. You'll find one without a beard, one with dark complexion, and the other one with a long white beard because we have adapted that tradition into our nativity scene, which, understand, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just not scriptural. It's just not something you could hang your hat on. Later on, tradition says that Thomas baptized these three men in 55 AD. That's part of the legend that goes with who these three men. But in reality, we don't know. We don't know who they are. We have no idea except the term Magi. So really, we'll just call them Magi. The second thing we don't know is we don't know how many there were. We have adapted the idea of three, but did you hear anything in the story I read just a moment ago to tell you there were only three people? Did you hear anything that said that three people were there? Now, now Alexander in about the third century began to write that there were three wise men because there's three gifts. And if you had three gifts, you have to have three people bringing gifts. But if you think about it logically, these three men bringing gifts from the east came to the attention of Herod in Jerusalem. Now, do you think three men passing through Jerusalem would come to the attention of the the king of Jerusalem? Probably not. And so most people speculate that, that if they came from the east and they traveled across the desert and they were carrying gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which were very expensive gifts, they probably didn't travel alone or they weren't really wise men. To be able to travel across the desert with those three things, they probably had an entourage around them. Most people speculate that they probably had soldiers with them to protect them. So the idea that showing up at this house was just three men carrying gifts, quietly sneaking on the scene, is not really the picture that he's painting in Matthew. This is a a large group of people that draw the attention of Herod. Then they leave Jerusalem following the star. Now the three men carrying the gifts, or the ten men carrying the three gifts, we don't know, but they were probably out in the lead. They were following the star. And the rest of the entourage, it would have attracted attention. And it did attract attention. And so we don't know how many there are, but but we can speculate that it was probably a very large crowd. So what do we know? We know that some educated men of an undetermined number, probably a large group, visited Jesus when he was a child. Now we also don't know where they came from. It says the East. There's a lot of speculation and a lot of theories about where they came from. Some people say it's Persia or Arabia. Some people say it's India because Alexander the Great opened up the pathway to India. Some people say it's even the further east. If you look at nativity scenes in some places in the east, some of the kings will have the complexion and the the eyes and the facial structures of people from the far east because they believe they came from the far east. All it says is the east. And so that can be anywhere east of Jerusalem. But the key phrase there, the reason Matthew adds from the east, is to try to help us understand that these were not Jewish men. That these were Gentiles. They were out of the Jewish tradition. They were not part of any of the Jewish lands. And so if you wanted to stress that further in Jewish lands, then you would say anything east of the Jewish land, which would be from Persia all the way across. And that's all we really know. That's all we understand where they came from. Now we do know, and this is getting into a little bit of history, we do know from the study of history that the Assyrian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire, including the Babylonian Empire for a little while, 
had a group of men that were educated scholars that they called Magi, and they were in Babylon. Now we know that this group of men uh, studied science, and they studied history, and they studied astrology, and they studied uh, theology even. So much so that when the Persian Empire came on the scene, and you may remember some of the Persian kings, Cyrus the Great, who allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, uh, Xerxes, Darius I, and Darius II, those Persian kings, we know from history, could not be crowned king until they came out of the school of Magi. So these Magis were the educators of the king. But also that's interesting from Persian history is that it was the Magi who would crown and recognize the king as the king of the lands. Part of their job was saying, this is the king. This is Darius. This is Xerxes. This is the king of kings for our land, for the Persian empire. Now this is where it gets interesting. And this is just speculation. But it's interesting speculation. Most of us know the story of Daniel. Well, at least we probably know that Daniel was in the lion's den. Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament. Daniel was in Jerusalem as a teenage practicing Jew when Nebuchadnezzar raided Jerusalem and destroyed it. He destroyed the walls, he destroyed the temple, and he carried off all the people in Jerusalem back to Babylon, including a teenage Daniel. Now, when Daniel got to Babylon, one of the first things they recognized is that he was smart. He was a teenager. And they said he was very uh, intelligent. And so he was pulled out from the rest of the slaves and begun a training regimen, an education regimen, where he was going to be used for the king's service. And the Bible says one thing that separated Daniel from everybody else is Daniel did not defile himself. He, he kept a kosher diet. He, he followed the Jewish traditions. Even in Babylon, and it said because he did that, God blessed him. And it said God blessed him in Daniel chapter 2 with understanding, with interpretation, and with knowledge. And Daniel used this interpretation to help interpret dreams. And later on, God used it, let Nebuchadnezzar understand some of the dreams that God was giving him about his life and where his life was going to go. And Daniel became one of his advisors. Later on in Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. His son Balthazar is now king. And Balthazar is having bad dreams. And so Balthazar's wife in Daniel chapter 5 says this. Listen to verse 11, and this ties it together. His wife says, There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like that of the gods. And your father, the king, appointed him to be the chief of the magi, to be chief of the enchanters, to be chief of the astrologers, and chief of the diviners. This man's name is Daniel. So now I want you to think about this. In Babylon, in captivity, Daniel, the practicing Jew, the, the, the faithful Jew, is raised up to become head of this educated group known as Magi. He's their teacher. He is their trainer. Daniel is the one who decides who is going to be the king of Persia. Later on, Daniel has some prophetic words, and many people look at Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 and talk about the prophecies and, and put it to apocalyptic times. But it can also be used to explain who the Messiah is. Listen to what Daniel dreamed in Daniel 7. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and that was a term for God in apocalyptic literature, and was led into the presence of God. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all people, all nations, and men of every language worshipped him. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now I want you to think about this. 450 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Daniel is prophesying that this Messiah, this, this King, this Christ, this anointed one, is going to come and change the world. And who is he prophesying it to? His school of Magi. Is it out of the question, me, is it out of the question that 438 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, when Daniel prophesied what was going to happen, that these people, these Magi, would have read Daniel's writings that talked about this Messiah, They would have studied it because he was the leader. They would have studied his writings. And that as they're studying it, they read about the prophecy of this anointed one, this Messiah. And then all of a sudden a star appears and they say, as astrologers, that's the sign. That's what Daniel was talking about. We need to go. Now wouldn't that be just like God? To work His plan out over 500 and 1,000 years, moving people in places so that we don't even understand how He is working, but always working on our behalf. I like to think that that's exactly who these Magi are. That's exactly that those are the ones who had trained under the studying of Daniel and they came looking for this one that would rule all the nations that Daniel had prophesied. But there's kind of a sad side note. If, if they actually did come from Persia, They didn't ride camels because the Persians rode horses. So take the camel out of your manger scene, put a stallion in there. You're going to be biblical if you're going to go down that road. So in reality, what do we know about them? We can speculate, but we really don't know where they came from except in the east. We don't know who they were. We don't know how many of them there were. And we we really don't even know when they got there. It says they followed a star. From the east. Now, people through time have said, well, it's got to be a comet, or it's, a, it, it's some kind of cosmic convergence, or maybe it's a planetary convergence where the planets lined up and it was a bright. We don't know, but I have never seen a star or a comet that moved around as I moved and walked before me. This star moved, and it says it stopped over the house of Jesus. I believe this was a divine sign for a divine time. But that doesn't tell us when they got there. Doesn't tell us how long it was. Now we know, because I showed you, it, it's not in the stable, because it says they found him in a house. And the word that used for Jesus was they found the child, which is a whole different word than infant we have in Luke chapter 2, because he wasn't an infant anymore. He was now a child. So we don't know when they got there. What we do know is that Herod, upon finding that this baby was born, that was going to be the Messiah or the King of the Jews, he ordered that every child 24 months and under, two years and under, in the area of Judea around Bethlehem be killed. So we can assume from that 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 they visited anywhere from a month after Jesus' birth to up to two years after Jesus' birth. We don't know when they got there. We don't know how old Jesus was. The early church celebrates January the 6th. The Catholic church, the Orthodox church, that's called the day of Epiphany. Have you ever heard that? Epiphany? King's Day? Epiphany comes from the Greek word meaning reveal. It's celebrating that this was when that Jesus Christ was revealed to the Gentiles, these kings, these magi. And so they celebrated his Epiphany. Now, in the Orthodox Church, is a little different because the Orthodox celebrates Christmas on January the 7th. So their epiphany is January the 19th. That's the Eastern Orthodox Church. But most Catholic churches and some Episcopal churches and Lutheran churches still celebrate Epiphany or King's Day on January the 6th. Now, interestingly enough, 
That is 12 days after the birth of Jesus Christ. And so if you ask yourself, that's where we get the 12 days of Christmas, from the birth of Jesus to Epiphany. That became the 12 days of celebrating Christmas. So what does all that tell us? Well, it tells us we don't know a whole lot. We know very little about who they were and how many there were and where they came from and where they got there. Let me just say, it's probably very rare that you come and listen to a sermon and know less midway through the sermon than you did before you got there. That takes skill, okay? That, you, can't just, you can't just do that on accident, okay? Because some of you are going, now I know less about this stuff than I did. Why didn't Matthew tell us? Why didn't Matthew say these magi that had studied under Daniel came in from the east and saw this child Jesus when he was 14 months old? And there was a big group of them and everybody paid attention. Why didn't he tell us? Because I think, going back to last week's message, when we talked about what Mary knew, I told you that Mary knew enough. I think what Matthew told us was enough. Because you see, he told us exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted us to hear. And the key to this passage is not how many there were. It's not where they came from. It's not when they got there. Not even how they got there. The key to this passage is why they came in the first place. And that's found in verse 2. The very first thing that we read in Matthew chapter 2 is why we call these guys wise men. Look what it says in verse 2. They asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jew? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. What do they ask? Where is the Messiah? Where is the king? Where is the Christ? This, because of that question, I believe, that this is why I believe these were Daniel Magi's. Because why in the world would Arab wise men, smart men, educated men, care about a king in the Jewish kingdom? Why would Arabs that have nothing to do with a captured Jewish colony care that a king was being born unless they had read that this king that was going to be born was going to be more than just king of the Jews, but he was going to be king of all people, as Daniel said. And that that compelled them that they got to go and see this king who will be king of all nations. So what did they ask? Where is Jesus? You see, what makes them wise? What we need to learn from this story the most important lesson for us is who they were seeking and not only who they were seeking but what they did once they found him it's an incredible precedent and ask us the question today who are we seeking what are we seeking for this christmas eve morning and more important for those of us that are not seeking anymore that claim to have found him what have we done in response to what we found what does finding The Christ, finding the anointed one, finding the Messiah. What has it done in your life? How has it changed you? Where is the Messiah? They say king of the Jews, but then when Herod goes and asks the religious leaders, he said, where's the Christ? The anointed one, that's what Christ means, the anointed one. Where's Christ? The Messiah, the anointed one. Where's he going to be born? So those, those wise men, those magi, had to have implied that we are searching for not just a king of the Jews, but someone who will be known as the Messiah. Do you realize that this question that's asked in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, is the first person that we see speak in the whole New Testament? The only person that speaks in Matthew chapter 1 is the angel Gabriel. Nobody else speaks. And what's the first thing that we have written that man speaks in the New Testament? Where is God? You know what the first question in the Old Testament was? 
This is going to blow your mind. Not the first speaking, but the first question. The first question in the Old Testament was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, and it was God speaking. You know what he asked? He asked Adam, where are you? How cool is the Bible? I mean, we, we look at this book and we say, well, it's 66 various different books that were written over a 1,500-year time period by very different people filled with the Holy Spirit. But in reality, it is one book with one theme and one story from Genesis to Revelation. And every part of it plays a role. Every part of it fits in. And it's not an accident that the very first question in the book is a holy God asking sinful man, where did you go? It's the theme of the Old Testament. That sin has divided a holy God and His creation. That a holy God and that which He created to love and worship Him have been divided. And that question of where are you is found all throughout in very different language throughout the Old Testament. Now contrast that to the New Testament. The very first question is not a holy God asking sinful man, but rather a sinful man seeking where are you God? You want to put that differently? Where is my hope? Where is my salvation? Where is my redemption? The very first thing spoken, God, where are you? And instantly, God answered by becoming flesh in a manger in the form of Jesus Christ and said, here I am. What does Jesus say when they ask him, are you God? I am that I am. I am that you say I am. He might as well say, here I am. To answer these wise men's questions, God, where are you? They are wise because they are seeking. Let me ask you this morning, what are you seeking? Are you looking for purpose? Are you looking for answers? Are you looking for, for, for some kind of peace in your spirit, in your heart? Why haven't you found it? Because you're not going to find it in the things of this world. They're only temporary and fleeting. You won't find it in religion. You won't find it in good works. See, these men were looking for God and they found Jesus. If you're willing to ask the question, where are you, God? You'll find it in the same place. Jesus Christ. What is my purpose? Jesus Christ. How can I be content, fulfilled, satisfied? Jesus Christ. How might I be saved? Jesus Christ. Now think about these magi. These guys we call wise men. They traveled between 500 and 1500 miles. They're not even Jewish. And they're searching for this Messiah, this King. Now compare that to the religious leaders that are six miles away in Jerusalem that have spent their whole life studying and waiting for the Messiah to come. And they're so wrapped up into pleasing Herod and doing things by the book that they don't even see what's happening right around them. It's a matter of who you seek. Who are you seeking this morning? What are you seeking this morning? There's only one place that you'll find peace and joy and love and hope. It's a message of Advent. You find it in the baby Jesus Christ. So again, I ask you, what are we seeking? But it wasn't just about what they were seeking. Lastly, it was what they did when they found it. A lot of us seek, and we're still struggling. There's a lot of you in here, you've been a believer. You've had Jesus Christ in your life for a long time. But you don't have peace and joy and love and hope. The Bible says, where is, verse 2, where is the Christ? Because we have come to what? Worship Him. That word worship doesn't mean sing. I know that's what we think. It means we have come to give Him the glory and honor that He is due. We have come to pay tribute to Him. And it tells us down at the end of the passage that when they found Jesus, they were overwhelmed. And they opened up these three gifts. And a lot of times we rush by these three gifts, but they are very significant. They are very symbolic. 
They are very important. This wasn't just what they had laying around the house. This wasn't, hey, we got to go get a gift, go pick something up, we're going to take this and pack it. And it, it. These had been thought out because of who they were going to worship. What did they bring? They brought him gold. Gold has always been universally throughout time one of the most wanted and sought after commodities in the earth. One of the most valuable commodities. Many people in the ancient East, in Persia, and, and in that, that Persian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, you would not go to see a king unless you brought gold. You didn't bring silver. didn't bring you know, some other trinkets. You brought gold because only gold would fit for a king. When they came and laid gold at his feet, these men, these magi who were crowners of, of kings came to Jesus Christ, this infant, newborn, probably 6, 10, 12 months, and they brought him gold. Now, on a practical standpoint, and this is how God works, okay, just remove yourself. On a practical standpoint, right after they leave, Herod starts killing babies. Now, Mary and Joseph are not home. They're in Bethlehem still because she couldn't travel. She's still recovering from having a baby. Herod starts killing babies. they got to run. So it says they go to Egypt. How do they afford to travel to Egypt? Because God just brought them gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three valuable things that they could turn around and sell to provide for them. But the symbolism of the gold was, was them saying, we are recognizing that you are the king. We are giving you the best. When we come and seek, our response to finding is always giving God the best. Giving God everything that we have, whatever it is that we value the most, handing it over to God and saying, God, it's yours. That is what the child deserves. And so they brought him gold. That was their form of worship. Jesus doesn't want your wallet. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't even want your song. He doesn't want your effort. He doesn't want your good deeds. All those things are good. But that's not what he wants. What he wants is you. He wants you to say, here I am. Take all of it. So that the Holy Spirit might come and fill you. Said they brought gold, they brought incense, is what the NIV says. We know from the translation that it was frankincense. Now, frankincense was interesting. Frankincense was an incense they burned in temple worship. If you've ever been in some of the Eastern churches where they burn incense, this incense, frankincense, was only used in temple worship. And it symbolized the presence of God. Matter of fact, it represented the cloud of God that would follow or lead the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. And so people in Jesus' day, when they smelled frankincense, the thing that they thought about was the temple and God. It was symbolically a way of saying that God is here. And when they opened that incense and that smell began to waft, those people that were there all of a sudden thought, God, God's presence, God's presence is here. And by giving him frankincense, what they were saying is that this truly is Emmanuel, God with us. God taking on human flesh and being in our presence. And the Bible says they were overwhelmed with joy. It's the same word we had last week for Mary. When Mary breaks out in song in Luke chapter 2 and she just can't control it and she starts singing when she's meeting with Elizabeth and it said she was jumping for joy literally is what the translation said. Even in the midst of just finding out she was an unwed mother about to be have a child with somebody that was not her husband, she's jumping for joy. Why? Because it says she was filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of God will always produce joy. When they begin to recognize that this was not just a normal infant, and when they crack that box of frankincense, we associate smells with incidents, don't we? 
I mean, you think some of Christmas, you smell evergreen, you think Christmas, right? Bacon, you think certain times. I always, coffee in the morning, I equate with, when I was a little kid, my grandmother would get up, make coffee for my grandfather like at five in the morning before he went to work. And so when I smell coffee, I instantly put myself back in, in bed thinking of my grandmother getting up thinking, they smelled incense. They thought, God, God, His presence is here. What does it say to us today? It says that we need to recognize that when we worship, God is not out there. We don't worship a God that sits in the stars. It's not a man upstairs. He's not up in the clouds. We worship a God that is right here with us. Why? Because Jesus Christ was born in human flesh and He took on mankind's sins. He died. He was resurrected, overcoming death. And He left, leaving us with the Holy Spirit that is God in us. And so when we worship, God is in us. And we, whenever we recognize that God is here, we should be filled with joy. That's why Mary could start singing in joy in the midst of a mess. When they recognize God is here. What an accident they brought frankincense. Gold and frankincense. Now, I can understand gold. I can understand frankincense. But myrrh is the one I don't understand. Myrrh, its main use was as an ointment to put on a dead body to keep it from decaying. Jesus' body was anointed with myrrh after he died. And you think it's an accident that... When he arrives, he gets myrrh, and when he dies, he gets myrrh. Do you think maybe they hadn't read in Daniel where it says that this Messiah would be cut off, that he would be killed, but yet his death would change the world? It would be significant. Do you think maybe these wise men didn't just stop and grab myrrh along the way, but they recognized that by giving him myrrh, even when he was a child, they were recognizing that he will die one day, but it will not be a normal death. It is not going to be something like all of us die. It is going to change the world. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let me ask you this morning. For those of you that have found this child, and you have a relationship with him, you sought him and you found him, or he found you, what has your response been to that? What did you do after you found him? I think it's interesting that the story ends. It said, after they had visited with a child, they were warned in a dream. Dream interpreters, just like Daniel. They were warned in a dream that Herod was after them. So it said they left and went a different route home. They didn't go the same way after visiting Jesus. They were changed. You and I need to understand that anyone that encounters, that seeks after Him and finds Him, you will be changed. The path that you came in on when you were seeking Him is not the path that you'll leave. It is a different road. It is a different path because anyone that encounters the living Jesus Christ in our heart, God in us, you are changed forever. And it's not an accident. It wasn't something, a side note, that Matthew decided to throw in. Oh, by the way, after visiting this baby, they changed course. Because everybody that met Him from here until His death until now, changed course after they met him. So let me ask you last time, what are you seeking this morning? Are you asking God, where are you? What is my purpose in life? This Christmas Eve, why am I here? You don't have to look any further than the nativity. You don't have to look any further than what these wise men found. Because your answer is Jesus Christ. The Bible says, seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. The problem for some of you is you're seeking in the wrong place. This morning, the Holy Spirit is telling you, stop seeking in a relationship. Stop seeking purpose in your career. Stop seeking your, your, who you are, your identity. 
according to what this world says, start seeking God. Seek Him first. And then for those of us in the church that have already found Him, what are you offering? What did you bring Him this morning? What worship did you give Him? The best that you had. Joy, welcoming, recognizing that He is with us all throughout our day. Understanding that His death, burial, and resurrection changed our life. What are you offering this King this morning? And then lastly and more importantly, how did finding Him change you? Have you been changed? Because if you haven't been changed, you hadn't found Him. Let's pray.